Antipsychotic medications have come a long way since Thorazine and Haldol. Most clinicians now feel much more comfortable prescribing these compounds, and it is a hugely profitable business, bringing in an estimated $11 billion annually. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Corey Davis. Corey is a Senior Equity Research Analyst in New York at a boutique investment banking firm called Natexas Bleischroder. He covers stocks in the pharmaceutical sector with a specific focus on the specialty pharmaceutical companies. Prior to working on Wall Street, Dr. Davis received his Ph.D. in molecular biology from Princeton. Welcome. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So, Dr. Davis, uh, tell us what's happening in this huge business of antipsychotics. Well, I think a lot of it can um, be encapsulated by a publication in the New England Journal of Medicine maybe a year and a half ago called the Katie Study that showed lots of things, but among them were that within 18 months, 75% of patients had stopped their medication, whether for either side effects or just lack of efficacy. So you've got this tremendously big category with lots of products on the market, and yet still, I think most physicians would tell you it's a dramatically underserved market. So lots of companies are working on, on new ways to, to come out with some schizophrenia drugs. You know, and again, as a practicing psychiatrist, things clearly are a heck of a lot better than they used to be. I, you know, I started my practice in the days where Thorazine and Haldol was just about all we had, and now we have all of these other options. But you're exactly right. Um, patients still um, have tremendous difficulty. The side effect profiles of these meds can be quite problematic, and it'd be great to have some new choices out there. So what's in the pipeline? What can we hopefully look forward to? Well, one of the ones that I think is more exciting is from a small company called Vanda that has uh, continued work where Novartis had left off on uh, another atypical drug called Iloperidone. The original development of Iloperidone was halted back in about maybe 2001 because the drug showed signs of QTC prolongation. And since that time, Pfizer's Geodon, which has also shown propensity for QTC prolongation, has done rather well in the market and is now started off slowly, but now on an annualized run rate of about 700 million just in the U.S. And it turns out that in, in clinical practice, QTC has not turned out to be as big a problem as was potentially initially feared. So Vanda has done another phase three study with iloperidone just to prove the efficacy. And it might not be the most potent atypical out there. And yes, it does have a little bit of QTC that they've proven is almost identical to that of geodons. But the big advantage is that it's shown uh, virtually no weight gain. It's shown no EPS symptoms. It's shown no prolactin elevation. So for the safety concerns out there, this looks like a really good drug that's somewhat pioneering is they've developed a diagnostic kit for both the efficacy and the safety where there's two different genes and a couple different alleles of each of those genes where if you've got the right uh, genotype, you've got a much higher chance of having higher efficacy. And same thing on the safety side, if you've got the right allele, a much lower chance of developing QT prolongation. So uh, maybe you can answer the question. For me, is that something that psychiatrists would be willing to administer? It's a simple blood test, but if you could do that and get your answer within 24 hours to know in which patients a priori this drug was going to work better, 
is that a meaningful advance? Oh, clearly. I mean, that's something we've been waiting for for years and years and years. So, so that is extraordinarily exciting. It may not be as applicable in general for a drug among GPs that aren't going to maybe want to do that. But from what I've been hearing among psychiatrists, and especially for a disease like schizophrenia that's treated almost primarily by psychiatrists, it would be a meaningful advance. Oh, very much so. And again, optimistic that perhaps we'll have things like that in the future for other illnesses like depression and anxiety. The the criticism of the drug industry has been that they've talked about this genetic-based medicine for years, but nothing's really ever gone to prove. Because on one hand, it, it immediately limits your market. And if you say a drug is only applicable for X percent of the population, it's a smaller market size for the drug. But um, for a smaller company like Vanda that, that's willing to do this uh, in the best interest of patients treating them, uh, I think it's going to go over very well. And the goodwill that it's creating in the community is going to be very high. And the FDA, um, through whom they've, they've vetted all of this leading up to the development, the NDA is about to be filed on this uh, in the next several months, the, the agency seems to be very willing to work with the company to get this thing approved with all of that kind of pharmacogenetic information in the label. Oh, so that will be part of the approval process. That's the, the plan right now. The, the data still haven't been publicly presented yet. In fact, today they're going to show some of the, the QT data that's cut by different genotypes. And in the future, you'll be seeing a lot more of the efficacy data. Uh, I think one of the reasons they haven't shown the the efficacy data yet is there's still a patent pending on this because the gene that, that dictates this efficacy still not uh, discovered, in quotes. So they want to make sure the patent gets issued in this. But yeah, the, the FDA is, is working with them to make sure that that is part of the approval process. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is pharmaceutical analyst Dr. Corey Davis. We're talking about the antipsychotic market. So, Dr. Davis, uh, one of the new medicines that has just come out that um, many physicians may not be aware of yet, the brand name is Invega. Can you tell us a bit about that? The generic name is paliperidone. It's a follow-on compound to J&J's Risperdal. It's just a metabolite of Risperdal. So the, there's kind of two sides to this one as well. The, the criticism has been that, well, J&J just came up with this as a, a line extension to save Risperdal going off patent next year, and that it's really no different than Risperdal. But flip side to that is, well, there's still a huge unmet medical need. You can't predict a priori which drug is going to work in which patient, so you do need lots of different alternatives out there. Um, the surprising thing about the drug when it was approved is it did come with the additional QTC warning in the label. And that was not and has not been in the label for Risperdal, and I don't think people really think about that at all. Now, whether or not it turns out to be clinically relevant, I'm not so sure, but it goes back to what we were saying earlier about an ultra-cautious FDA on safety. And if there's any kind of safety signal, they're tending to put them in the label. Prospects for the drug are still unclear right now. It hasn't gotten off to a great start, so Wall Street, the, the, the jury's still out as to whether or not this can really uh, save Risperdal from generics next year. What is happening with Zyprexa? You know, from a clinician standpoint, Zyprexa has, has been a tremendous asset to my patients. It's quite uh, remarkable in its efficacy, but the side effects have caused a a whole lot of problems, and I know uh, multiple lawsuits as a result. What's happening with the legal situation with Zyprexa? Yeah, this goes back to uh, what we were talking about earlier, too, with drugs being used off-label, drugs being promoted improperly, 
And whenever there's side effects associated with a drug, it's, it's an easy target for folks, but uh, for legal folks, that is. And uh, I think especially with Zyprexa, because the risk of diabetes and weight gain, although kind of n- known early on, it's becoming a much more widespread problem that's more specific to Zyprexa than some of the, the atypicals. And whenever you get something like that, it, it tends to spur lawsuits in this litigious drug society that we're in. So those suits are still going on. Has it changed the bottom line at all for the industry? It certainly had an impact on Lilly, not on the expense side, but probably more on the revenue side, where Zyprex is still their largest drug, but it's not growing and even declining a little bit. So I don't, I don't think the lawsuits per se have really affected the bottom line for Lilly, but the, the realization of how, how bad the, the weight gain and diabetes risk can be on Zyprexa has had an impact on what you might have predicted the growth of the drug would have been a couple of years ago. Dr. Davis, can we back up a bit? When you were speaking about Invega, the, the whole question of patent uh, extension sort of issues has come up a lot now in many different therapeutic areas. And certainly the, the buzz I hear at dinners and things with my physician colleagues is that this is a subject that, that inspires a lot of emotion from physicians, that we wonder if sometimes the drug companies just think we're stupid, that we can't see through some of these patent extension issues. From a business perspective, can you put that in focus a bit maybe for those of us in clinical practice that may not understand the, the greater issues involved? Certainly a criticism that's in certain cases warranted for drug companies where they come out with either a metabolite or an isomer that's that's effectively no different than the original parent compound. And the plan is to just transition all of the the current product that's maybe going off patent in a year or two onto the new patent. Um, There have been plenty of examples where the new line extensions are better. We can argue till the cows come home as to whether or not, say, Wellbutrin XL, a once-daily instead of the old Wellbutrin SR being a twice-daily being the only difference, was warranted. Uh, but you could look at drugs like Allegra that replaced Seldane, where there was a real problem with the original product and it was a meaningful improvement. Now, there's countless examples, Nexium from, from Prilosec, Lexapro, and Celexa, and I think everyone has to be examined on, on a case-by-case basis and say, was this really a meaningful improvement? Did they improve the efficacy? Did they reduce the side effects, or is it nothing more than trying to pull the wool over uh, doctors' eyes? And there are some plenty of examples, I think, where there, there was no difference out there. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Corey Davis. We've been discussing what is on the horizon in antipsychotics and some of the broader issues involved in patents with pharmaceutical medicines. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.